Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I appreciate all of you out there who are listening to our show uh, this morning as we go live at uh, in the 9 o'clock hour or listening to the repeat of the show at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We have a lot to talk about, a great panel to discuss political news of the day with, so let me get right to introducing them all. Um, we're joined today by Shannon McCaffrey, who is an enterprise reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Shannon, the last time we talked to you on the show, you were still uh, fit, really in the last stages of covering the Herschel Walker campaign for the United States Senate, right? Yes, and I survived. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, your well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but your candidate <laughs> did not. <laughs> he, he did not uh, go out as a winner in that race. Uh, but thank you so much for being here uh, with us today. We're joined by Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University. Amy, we're so glad to have you back with us. We should also point out you are co-chair of the political science department, and I think you're headed for bigger things at the political science department in the months ahead, yes? Yes, um, July 1st, I officially become chair rather than associate chair, which means I get to do all the scheduling and budgeting, and so I'm having to learn a whole bunch of new systems and I'm terribly excited about all of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure whether we say congratulations or condolences to you for that, but in any case, it is well, it is recognition of the fact that you are highly valued at, at Georgia State University. David Wilkerson, a state representative from Powder Springs, is uh, back with us, Democrat. Uh, David, uh, you had a first week of the session under your belt last week, or a portion of the first week. Now you're Got budget hearings. How are things going for you so far downtown? So far, so good. You know, when we first get back to the Capitol, they will tell you this, we uh, miss everybody. Both sides of the aisle, we're hugging each other like we you know, haven't seen each other in, in, in years. And it, it really worked out great. Uh, we have a new speaker. I think uh, Speaker Burns will do a great job. Um, all the caucuses are getting set. Now we are uh, walking into budget hearings and and it's always nice to have an extra couple of billion dollars that um, that you can take care of Georgians with. But uh, so far, so good. Boy, it sure is. On the show yesterday, we talked a lot about the governor's budget plans. And one of the things that virtually everyone on, everyone in the panel uh, on the panel agreed on is that uh, Governor Kemp's proposals uh, are really going to be uh, accepted widely uh, by both sides of the aisle because there's so much in there for so many Georgians. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's the once you get past the big budget items, whether it's hope or the tax rebates. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of discussion, but definitely there's a lot in there that uh, Georgians can be happy about. Um, we've done a great job, both parties, of the last few years with the budget, and I think we're reaping the rewards of that now. 
Edward Lindy is, uh, Ed, I'm sorry, Edward Lindsay is back uh, with us. Of course, he's a former state representative from Atlanta and is now a member of the state election board. Uh, Edward, you were a leader in uh, the House when you were a member, a Republican member back in your day. Do you ever miss it when you hear David talking about everybody getting together at the start of the session, hugging each other, getting along with one oh, another? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a great time when I was in the legislature and made some uh, some of my best friends uh, there. Uh, but uh, and I am envious that David is dealing with budget surpluses. I was there when we had a four billion dollar budget shortfall. That was not a fun yeah. session. So, uh, yeah, enjoy those were the, enjoy the, the good times when you have it. David. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Those were those were very hard times uh, during your tenure down there, uh, Edward. All right. Um, I want to start today with news out of Washington. Shannon, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who uh, uh, was exiled from any committee assignments when Democrats were in control of the House because of her many of her outrageous, um, anti-Semitic, uh, racist remarks. Uh, she was uh, uh, marginalized. They didn't want much to do with her. She is suddenly back in a role where she's going to have a considerable amount of power uh, because she very shrewdly supported Kevin McCarthy's bid to become a speaker when a lot of the people uh, who are out there on the right wing with her didn't. Um, she's now been awarded seats on two powerful committees, the House Oversight Committee and the Homeland Security, uh, Homeland Security uh, Committee. So this is a big comeback for her, Shannon, and it remains to be seen what kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene we're going to see now that Congress is in session again. Yeah, I mean, clearly this was a uh, this was a reward for backing McCarthy. I mean, when he was in the throes of what was it, 15 votes, um, she was one of his most outspoken proponents. I mean, I think a lot of people saw that photo of her waving uh, the phone with Donald Trump on the line, trying to galvanize support for McCarthy. So, you know, there, there's no secret that she was very um, shrewd in lining up behind McCarthy because of what it could do for her. You know, it will be interesting to see how she emerges from this, whether she will temper things a little bit with um, an actual role in power where she can have some say in how things go. I don't know. I'd be surprised if we saw a very different Marjorie Taylor Greene, though. I think, you know, she is who she is. She speaks her mind, and that's what her constituents love about her. Um, I spent some time up in her district when I was um, covering the Senate campaign, and they love the fact that she's outspoken. And, you know, from their perspective, you know, she speaks truth to power. Um, so I'd be surprised if we saw a very different Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I would um, expect some scorched earth politics up there in terms of, you know, oversight and Homeland Security. And Homeland Security obviously has such a role in border issues, which have been a big deal. So I, I think we'll be hearing a lot more from her. So Edward, um, let me turn to you on this. Um, she will be on the Homeland Security uh, Committee. One of the uh, videos that surfaced uh, in any number of social media platforms uh, since she was named to that committee uh, is one in which uh, some time ago she talked about 9-11 and raised a suspicion about the plane, uh, among, among the other planes, that uh, crashed into the Pentagon. Let's just listen to what she said. But we had witnessed 9-11 
right? We had witnessed 9-11, uh, the terrorist attack um, in New York, and the plane that uh, crashed in Pennsylvania, and the so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd, there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. But anyways, I won't, I'm not going to dive into the 9-11 conspiracy. So, Edward, she will now serve on that Homeland Security uh, Committee. What are your thoughts about her uh, regaining uh, uh, some, well, for the first time, really, being in a much more powerful position than she was as a freshman representative? Well, first off, uh, I, I agree with Shannon. Um, uh, I don't think that we should expect to see any kind of uh, sudden change in her tone. Although, it does happen. I mean, uh, I can think, you know, during my 10 years in the in the Georgia House, I, I remember two fiery individuals, one on the far right and one on the far left, who by the time they left the General Assembly had uh, become constructive representatives. I'm not expecting that out of uh, out of Representative Green uh, in terms of changing how she operates, but, but I guess we'll see. I do also want to sort of point out, and I think it's important to point out, while we often talk about Folks that are performers in the in the in legislatures, meaning folks who like to get in front of cameras a lot, we don't speak enough about uh, producers and folks like uh, Sanford Bishop uh, on the Democratic side from Southwest Georgia, who is chair of the Agricultural Committee. And you know we have two folks that have a potential to be producers who have been recently elected who will put in two powerful committees that will make a major impact here in Georgia. One is uh, Mike Collins who's been appointed to the Transportation Committee, uh, which is an extremely important committee for, for Georgia. And the other one is um, is uh, Representative uh, Rick McCormick, Rich McCormick, who's been appointed to Armed Services, two vitally important committees for Georgia. And so we'll see whether or not they go down the route of performers or they uh, go down the route of producers. And certainly given the committees they've been given, we can all hope they go down that producer route. Um, David, and then Amy, I think that Edward makes a really good point. Uh, there are producers and there are showboaters um, in the legislature here in Georgia, as well as in the United States Congress. And, um, you know, the people of the 14th District, and for that matter, the state of Georgia, could be well served if uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene were to take advantage of her position on those two powerful committees to uh, act in ways that could be beneficial to her district and to the state of Georgia. But it becomes clear on the House Oversight Committee um, that they are going to spend an awful lot of their time investigating Hunter Biden, other members of the Biden administration. Um, they don't seem to have any uh, 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 ideas about doing anything uh, beyond making headlines for their investigations and their efforts to make Democrats look bad. And the same applies over at Homeland Security, although um, it's the Judiciary Committee that is going to launch a possible impeachment of Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Certainly in her role on the Homeland Security Committee, she'll have a lot to say about that. So speak to this notion of producers as opposed to performers. <clears throat> Yeah, my hope David? is that she can. Yeah. yeah, my hope is that she can do both. I mean, to be honest with you, I agree that um, the performance is going to continue. I mean, that's what got her where she is, and that's what her district likes. A, a large portion of it, I will say, 
uh, being in the 14th and all of my house district being in the 14th, it's a completely different picture when you get down to the Cobb County area and, and over here by Paulding. Um, so the hope is that her staff will do an amazing job of, of focusing on the bread and butter issues and, and taking care of the district while she does what she does. And then she can leverage her relationships to actually get some things done for the 14th. So if she can do both of those, then we'll just have to live with the fact that when you mentioned this is her second term or so, it, it seems like she's been down there for 10 years just because of the attention. I mean, I'm still <laughs> amazed at that point. So, um, but, but if she can leverage that for the, for the district, that's beneficial for her constituents as well as mine. So um, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. I'm going to be reaching out to her staff soon uh, now that we've gotten past the election season and hopefully develop those relationships. Um, I'm told by some people at the Capitol that I should not, um, fear what I see on TV that uh, <laughs> that they will do a great job for the district, but you know it's, it's to be seen. Amy, yeah, one of the I mean, one of the interesting things is that studies routinely show that, somewhat ironically, especially for those of us who are looking at policy, you there's very little electoral benefits and re-election benefits to getting legislation passed. Uh, most uh, constituents have no idea, right? They pay much more attention to what you've introduced. Uh, people pay much more attention to name recognition and incumbency status. And so all of those things, right, obviously go to it. And they also provide sort of to uh, Representative Wilkinson's point, um, what is being done in the district itself, right? When I show up at the office and I need help with something, do they have good constituency services? And so if you put a lot of your staff actually in your district as opposed to up in DC, that again has uh, real electoral benefits. So, you know, there's this sort of counterpoint of, you know, to sort of uh, end point that we we sort of want people to be producers, but it's also a question of producing what, right? I mean, if you're producing good constituency services, that's great. The problem becomes if you are, for example, ignoring what your constituents need, if you're not voting in line with their actual preferences, and if you're also perhaps not working to further the things that they could use, and I think some of the question we'll see is how much attention is she spending on, for example, speaking on Homeland Security, as opposed to actually addressing the needs of those in her district proper. Edward, um, we know that the Republican Party uh, right now in Washington certainly does not look like the Republican Party that you have been a member of for so long here in the state of Georgia. And um, I, if, if we're going to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her committee assignments, we probably ought to spend just a couple minutes on the fact that uh, George Santos, uh, who uh, is under fire for having made up almost everything about who he is and what he's done, was assigned also, <clears throat> excuse me, to two committees by the speaker. He'll be on the uh Science, Space, and Technology Committee and the Small Business uh, Committee. And, and, and I, I guess what's interesting to me about this, Edward, is that we saw during his fight to become Speaker that McCarthy seemed to be willing to surrender almost every basic principle uh, that he might have, almost every notion of the policies that he believed in to make sure he won the votes. But what's interesting about it, Edward, is when you elevated George Santos, if you're not, if the speaker is not going to try to do something to um, have him perhaps removed from office, isn't even going to question whether he's in office at this point. Um, in the long run, he's just making trouble for himself because Santos looks like he's moving to the far right. 
Well, uh, the situation with Santos and with some of these other outspoken, once again, I like the word performers, uh, is <laughs> this is what happens that when you have you're holding on to power by such a narrow majority, uh, in this case, about four seats. Um, the Democrats faced uh, something perhaps not as not in my my friend David's view as extreme, but still had uh, Speaker Pelosi had difficulty with her far left and the squad and, and other folks like that when she was holding a narrow majority. And, you know, how do you punish? How do you hold keep in line? How do you deal with folks who are outliers to the policies that you're trying to advance? When you're only holding on to power by three, four, five votes, uh, and Representative Santos is an extreme example of that. Uh, I'm, uh, my assumption is that he will be a one-term congressman if he makes it that far. I'm not sure what the, the laws are in New York regarding recall, <laughs> but if they if they exist like they do in Georgia, uh, my guess is there will be a recall position a petition going around pretty soon to to have him removed in a special election uh, created from that. But you know it gets back to the you know the, the difficulty of holding of holding power when you only have uh, three, four, five seats to spare, uh, and that's what uh, Speaker McCarthy. Uh, was dealing with. And the question is, how does he govern with such a narrow majority, given as, you know, given what he had to give up in order to get it? Um, we're going to have to see. Uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to his personality to see whether or not he could hold uh, control over his caucus and pull over enough Democrats to get things done. Nancy Pelosi, uh, who also held an extremely narrow majority when she was Speaker, uh, through her force of her personality and her uh, persuasive powers was able to hold her Democratic caucus in line. Um, and we're just going to have to see what uh, Speaker McCarthy can do. Um, um, well, you know, we will it, watch. It was for... messy. It was definitely messy uh, in terms of how we got, got to his position. I, I apologize for uh, interrupting you there, Edward. Yeah. All right. Um, we'll watch. We'll watch to see what happens with the Republican controlled House uh, in the weeks and months ahead. We'll watch how Marjorie Taylor Greene comports herself now that she is back in favor with the majority in the House. So, Shannon, let's turn to the fact that uh, Governor Kemp has been in Davos, Switzerland, the World Economic Forum. It really puts a spotlight on him. We, we had all predicted that after his uh, resounding victory against David Perdue in the primary, and then also a significant victory over Stacey Abrams, he had certainly put himself in a position to be a much more uh, highly uh, uh, sought-after Republican in national circles. Davos makes him up, gives him an even bigger uh, uh, forum uh, to express himself, and uh, he used his opportunity on a panel yesterday. Shannon, to talk about uh, uh, businesses investing in Georgia, talked about the economy uh, rocking and rolling along. But he also talked about immigration. He used the opportunity to say that while he knows Congress is working on immigration reform, he hopes that they first and foremost look at securing the border. Talk about what you think of his visit uh, to the World Economic Forum means, Shannon. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this visit was so much about symbolism, right? I mean, the, uh, you know, Davos is a place where people wear ski boots, and Governor Kemp was there wearing cowboy boots, and I think that says a lot. I mean, he was he was sort of there. He was sort of there as as almost a rebuke to what you know some of the the ideals and the thoughts and the and the sort of elitism of that event represent. And I think uh, you know that symbolism is very important. Um, you know, he had a great economic message to sell. George is in a good position right now. So he's able to go over there with, you know, a bunch of positive um, economic development projects under his belt, you know, and many of them green economic projects, which is so striking coming from, you know, a Republican governor who is not known for his embrace of climate change, you know, so he's able to go over there and say, okay, um, rich billionaires, this is how we do it in Georgia. And it's actually worked. Um, and at the same time, you know, he he hikes his national profile, whatever he has in has in mind next, whether it's, you know, perhaps running for the Senate um, or some other office on a national level, you know, it, it boosts his national profile. But but again, I think the trip was so much about symbolism and less about any specific message. You know, he pitched it as, you know, I get to talk to leaders from other countries and, and sell Georgia. But, you know, the mere fact was him being there was the news. Yeah, and I think the other side of it is, right, is he is attempting to broaden out what uh, types of businesses, right, states want to attract and what that sort of means. And and there was a, you know, a, a good piece that, that was written, the political piece, sort of looking at sort of how he's walking this line of sort of saying that he wants uh, Georgia really to be the sort of uh, electric mobility capital, right, of the United States, but yet it's not really about climate, it's about manufacturing and, and shifting sort of what we're doing. It's about uh, changing the types of economic uh, development that's going on in the state of how we increase jobs and kind of recognizing where the new jobs are and where those economies go. But it's also this sort of flip side. I think the, the other thing that's notable perhaps this year about Davos is that well, there's only, for example, one G7 leader that is there. Um, it is very much, there, there's kind of a change. It is not having the prominence that it has had in past years, especially on sort of a, a national, international level. And so it does sort of shift the, I guess, somewhat of is the purpose to, in fact, influence policy, which I think was really what was happening in previous years. Right? When you've got all the G7 leaders, Maybe it's the panel, but it's also the meetings that they're having while they're there and they're taking advantage of. We're, we're seeing less of that. Um, and it's more perhaps a place for uh, someone like Governor Kemp to be able to raise both his national and international profile. Um, David and then Edward, I want to talk to you about another aspect of this. It strikes me, David, there's kind of a little bit of a tightrope walking act for Kemp at Davos. On one hand, he certainly has to portray himself as a sophisticated leader who knows how to do business with major corporations that he may want to attract to the state. And he certainly has a record in bringing in Hyundai and Rivian and the other projects that he's brought into the state. So he's got that going for him. But at the same time, he wants to make sure that folks back home don't think he has suddenly become one of the uh, <laughs> elites <laughs> and would like to spend more of his time, you know, at fancy ski resorts across uh, the uh, the Alps <laughs> in in Europe. So it's a little bit of a tightrope act for him, uh, David. It is definitely that. Um, you know, 
he has to be careful, and I, I think he will, uh, is focusing on Georgia, but also being there nationally, internationally. Um, if you put it under the presumption that he's going there to, for economic development purposes, I think it's the easier sell. But what I'm seeing is what I saw when I first started in the legislature back in 2011 is basically conservative policies with, I guess, progressive outcomes. Back in 2011, it was more than criminal justice reform. It was conservative policies dealing with a billion dollars a year locking people up, but progressive outcomes of being smart on criminal justice reform. This is another situation where he's embracing what would be a, a progressive policy, progressive outcome, meaning investing in EVs, investing in EV plants. Um, and he's not saying it's because of climate change, it's because of economic policies. So he's continuing that conservative policies, but um, we're getting a progressive outcome by investing in smart uh, technology for the future. So, um, yeah, I, I, he's been able to balance that throughout his whole career. So I think he'll be able to continue to do that. Um, and as long as it's progressive outcomes, I think um, you're going to get support. Edward, I want to bring you, you know, in, but let me play you a sound. Let me play a soundbite real quickly, uh, because Kemp also did, gave his budget uh, remarks to the uh, Appropriations Committee from Davos. And just to make his the point about his not straying from his Georgia roots, here's a little bit of what he told the committee. For anyone partisan enough to say that I'm not focused solely on state matters and what's best for our fellow Georgians, I trust that these budget proposals will demonstrate how out of touch these comments are. Edward? Well, it's always a good thing when good policy and good politics come together. Uh, the governor's uh, trip to Davos reminds me of uh, the comment by Willie Sutton, the notorious bank robber back in the 30s when he was asked why he robbed banks. He said, well, that's where the money is. Uh, you know, the, the governor went to Davos uh, uh, to talk about economic development because <laughs> that's where the money is. And to the extent that we can raise our Georgia profile to a lot of folks around the world to come to Georgia. And a lot of these plants we're talking about coming into Georgia are folk companies from overseas. It's, it's all the better. Uh, you know, in terms of the uh, encouragement on uh, EV technology, great. Once again, the fact of the matter is the governor's been trumpeting that for quite some time. Uh, spent uh, two or three minutes in his inaugural address talking about he wants Georgia to be the EV uh, industrial center for the uh, for the country. And so, you know, that is the wave of the future. Uh, and, and, you know, it is important for us to, to, to look toward those industries that will be the industries of the future rather than the industries of the past. And, and so, yeah, good politics and, and good policy have come together on this. Shannon, I've got to get to a break, but before I do, uh, let me point out, Politico Magazine on Friday uh, uh, put up on its website a profile, a really, in many ways, glowing profile of Governor Kemp. The headline was something to the effect of, meet the Republican uh, who supports e-vehicles, and it talked extensively about bringing Hyundai to the state, uh, 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 bringing Rivian in, it talks about Q-cells and their solar panel production. What's interesting about it, Shannon, is repeatedly he was asked whether the greening of Georgia is part of the governor's plan uh, to help fight climate change here. And he just refuses to answer that. He just won't say, yes, we're going to fight climate change, which I think is really fascinating. 
I, I read that piece and I had the same reaction. I mean, to me, it's, it's uh, uh, well, I guess you could say it's a brilliant political two-step because he's, you know, he's, he's framing it as an economic development argument, right? When no one's going to argue against that. But if he, if he does sort of get deep into the climate change issue, then, you know, he's, he's getting into trickier political territory. But yeah, I, I just think he's, he's, you know, it harkens back to when he was having the feud with Trump, right? Like he, he never criticized Trump, uh, uh, but, you know, disagreed with him. So, you know, I, I just think he's very good at sort of threading that needle. Uh, Amy, it also strikes me before we get to the break that when Kemp refuses to weigh in on climate change in any significant way, it is a clear signal to us that he sees himself having a political future beyond serving a second term as governor of the state. <laughs> Most decidedly. I mean, and, and the other side of that is that one of the things that was in that political piece is that he was asked whether or not he, for example, mm -hmm. uh, was thinking about any type of higher office. And his response was, my intention is to serve four years. And when it was pointed out that that's not a firm commitment, he agreed. And so I think, yes, that he's definitely looking that way and is doing a lot of things to be able to build that profile and skirt that line between how do we capitalize on this growing area for economic development, but also not upset uh, those that are still, uh, you know, investing in fossil fuels. Okay, we got to get to a break. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Representative David Wilkerson, Edward Lindsay, Amy Steigerwald, and Shannon McCaffrey join me for today's Political Rewind. Um, Edward, just a brief uh, item that I'd love to address uh, to you since you are a member of the state election board. When SB 202, the election reform law, was uh, uh, signed by Governor Kemp, and while the debate was uh, going on about it, one of the provisions that uh, Democrats uh, were concerned about was the provision that would allow the state to take over a county election office that didn't wasn't performing its job uh, uh, well. And a lot of comments were made by Democrats saying this was uh, a way in which the state could take over Fulton County's election machinery, the largest Democratic uh, county in the state in terms of votes. And we have to say that is not what happened when uh, the election board uh, put together a panel to look at whether Fulton County was doing its job in running its elections or, in fact, a takeover was necessary. Tell us why the decision was made not to have the state take over the elections in Fulton. Well, the bottom line is that while Fulton County has had a history of, of administrative difficulties uh, when it comes to running its election systems, um and and that's what prompted the, the review that took place and 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 the um state election board appointed three excellent individuals to take a look at it um you know that the 
since the, the the review began in 2021 uh you know they showed through their report that there's been steady progress uh with the Fulton County election system in terms of trying to streamline its administrative process provide greater uh education uh to poll workers and to uh election staff members uh to clean up a lot of the administrative problems that have been chronic within Fulton County and while progress is being made why uh have uh the state come in and try to take over when the county is making progress uh you know this provision of the of the election code change and that that was in 2021 i i think is a good thing because it does provide uh an ability for the state election board to provide oversight and to to go in and do a deep dive uh into uh counties that may have had a chronic issues when it comes to how they run elections uh and and help shepherd them to do better uh, i think that that the county deserves a lot of uh, applause for for where they are now versus where they were before uh, and and I think the state deserves uh, some applause as well in terms of providing the oversight to encourage them to do so. Uh, this process took a took an enormous amount of of help from multiple different entities, both within government and outside. And I think one of the most telling things when it came to why you know a takeover did not take place was from the report that was by one of the outside um, contractors who went in and investigated who who found you know no evidence of fraud uh but uh but serious issues when it came to the administration of the uh, of the election system when it came to transparency and basically following a lot of the rules that are necessary for uh, folks to have confidence in elections and have shown that the county has since then improved and that same uh, uh analysis took place for, like i said for both that outside the contractor and from the carter center who came in and did additional oversight of the 2022 uh midterm elections uh so you know i'm i'm pleased to see the the improvements in fulton county i'm pleased to see everyone also agrees that more needs to be done and uh, right now we seem to have folks in fulton county prepared to do so uh i will say as a as as a member of the state election board uh, i have often joked that uh when it comes to things like this you got to follow a pottery barn analysis and which you know you got to remember that if you that if you uh break it you own it uh, so um, I didn't really want to see the state election board be too eager to jump in and take over any county uh, rather than have the local officials fix it. But I do want to see uh, the counties improve uh, in how they operate. And we've seen that that progress in Fulton County and hopefully uh, we'll see it elsewhere. But I want can I, and I know I'm going a little bit long, but let me add one more thing. One other thing that, that's I think very important in that report is it does talk about how the state, and the state election board needs to be more proactive in working with the counties to get them to where they need to be without this kind of action taking place. Uh, and we need additional resources to help these counties in doing so. We want to be more cooperative rather than simply a stick that goes after them. David, it strikes me that there are a couple of counties where there's more questions about elections and how they're run 
uh, than Fulton County these days. One of them is down in Coffee County, where there's now, of course, criminal investigation of the fact that Trump election deniers went in and accessed the election equipment, the machinery there, and pulled out who knows what data about voters down there. There's some questions about what's going to happen. And that included, by the way, the manager of the uh, election office in Coffee County. So we'll see how the state election board deals with that. And then, unfortunately, problems in Cobb County with getting out absentee ballots on time during the midterm election, which is also uh, an issue that's, uh, I assume, going to be looked into. I would hope so. And I think this is where we'll have to lean on the state board is that right now it's unclear as to who's actually accountable. Um, I was deeply involved in the absentee ballot information as far as finding out the, you know, that the ballots didn't get mailed out. I emailed them several times before they admitted that they didn't mail them out. Um, I identified the two dates and they had to go to court. And then the same thing happened in the runoff. So there's obviously a lot of issues, whether it's, you know, people being in place too long or people leaving, whatever they may be. But we have another election coming up at the end of March and we have the same team in place. And so I am deeply concerned about the March election. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it's one of those things that you've always taken pride in Cobb and how they've run elections. But this last year has been nothing but uh, mistake after mistake. And it really is voters not getting a chance to exercise their rights, whether that's a Democrat or Republican. Um, those absentee ballots through my analysis, a lot of them were either older Republicans or younger Democrats. I mean, people at college or, or people that are at home or living out of the state. And so it impacted people on both sides of the aisle. And we just need to get it fixed. All right. Um, I tell you what, why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way now? Because there are a number of issues I'd still like to take on with this panel. Uh, but uh, let's do that in a way that we're not going to be interrupted again by breaks. Let's get that one done right now and come back with more on Political Rewind. Shannon McCaffrey, uh, before we went on the air today, everybody on the panel complimented you on the profile that you wrote uh, for the AJC a week or so ago on the new Speaker of the House, John Burns. And we, you pointed out to us as we were talking that this is a guy who has stayed under the radar in many ways. He fills the very big shoes of David Ralston, a beloved figure at the General Assembly. What did you learn uh, um, about John Burns in working on that profile that uh, uh, particularly interested you? Yeah, I mean, he really was, you know, in terms of news coverage, a bit of a blank slate, which is, um, which is, you know, a good opportunity to report on because, you know, you, you, you have an opportunity to plow some ground. But I, I think one of the things that interested me about him is that he, he like, he likes to portray himself as, you know, kind of a, a good old boy, a Georgia farmer, um, but he's also a multimillionaire. You know, he's got a lot of timber, timberland. He um, has made money off timberland. He's, um, he's uh, sponsored legislation that has helped timber products. So he's savvy. You know, this is not someone who, who is uh, as perhaps country as he would as he would like to portray. I think, you know, and we talked about this a little bit too, his district, which is, you know, east of, I'm sorry, west of Savannah and kind of tucked up along the uh, South Carolina border, doesn't get a lot of attention. I mean, this, the, the, uh, he's, he's, 
sort of been able to operate in a bit of a news vacuum. And Ralston always, you know, grabbed the headlight, the headlines at the Capitol. But I also think, and this was one thing folks told me again and again and again, is you are not looking at somebody who is going to be an extremist. Um, you are looking at somebody who is going to be very much, uh, um, you know, a moderating influence in some ways, much like David Ralston was when he was at the Capitol. He was known as, you know, the, the, the guy who was going to kill crazy legislation, uh, quote unquote quote, you know, that came out of perhaps the Senate or other places, you could count on Ralston to sort of tamp that down. So he does really seem as if he's going to be in that same Ralston mode. The thing I didn't get a sense of because he wasn't willing to talk policy yet, because I spoke to him just before he took over, is really where his legislative priorities are going to be. Um, you know, what does he want to make his um, his legacy, his mark? Where does he want to um, where does he want to put his stamp? And and that I think is going to be a fascinating issue to follow. I would expect he would probably um, dig in on some of these rural issues because that's where, you know, he's been based and that's where his knowledge base is. But at the same time, he has to show himself as a leader for the state, not just a leader for his district. So it'll be interesting to see how he straddles that. David, I think it's fair to say that um, Democrats felt that they had the ear of David Ralston, when you needed it, he would listen to you and was fair in how he dealt with Democrats. Now, he was still a Republican and he still promoted Republican ideas and, and legislation. Um, but but you did have an opportunity to work in with com comedy with a David Ralston. And apparently John Burns is the same kind of uh, leader. I would agree with that. Um, you know, David Ralston, Speaker Ralston is going to be missed, and he was loved by many. And, and like you said, for that stabilizing um, way he ran the chamber, uh, I think you're going to see the same thing in Speaker Burns. Um, a lot of the newer members have gotten to know him before he was Speaker, so that's also a benefit. So they got to know him when he was, you know, sitting in the chamber with everybody else and, and developing those relationships. So I think that's going to be powerful for all the people that have just come in because we've had a lot of turnover. But uh, Speaker Burns has already started with a steady hand. I mean, we have for the first time gotten our, uh, you know, adjournment resolution for the whole session. So we know when we're coming we know when we're going. Um, he's the first speaker I can think of that's been elected by the whole chamber unanimously. Um, so, you know, I think it's a new slate, but at the same time, you're carrying over that, that moderate policies, hopefully, and we'll see what his legislative policies are. But I think everybody's kind of looking forward to the opportunity to agree on the things we can and then, um, you know, respectfully disagree on the things where we don't. And uh, I think we're going to see that. David, while the ball's in your court, let me start another conversation. Uh, what, we're, what, what we're not likely to see the speaker be supportive of is the full expansion of Medicaid to the some 400,000 plus Georgians who uh, are, are not able to get it right now. Governor Kemp has a much narrower uh, plan. He's got a waiver, which seems to be uh, uh, in place to limit uh, expansion of Medicaid to about 50,000 people. Uh, this waiver came from first the Trump administration, the Biden administration tried to fight it, but it now looks like it's going to move forward. And Democrats have now once again put on your agenda full expansion of Medicaid. But this is not an issue that is can be gotten across to a Republican-controlled legislature. You know, the one thing that the pandemic has taught us is that, you know, the need for a primary care physician 
and and be able to go to a doctor is just is I mean it's paramount. Um, soon as if you test positive for COVID, they're going to refer you to your primary care physician. <laughs> you know, if you get sick, if you can't go to work, refer you to your primary care physician. And so I think the expansion of Medicaid is one of the ways to get there. But we have to look at the reality we're in. If you look at a committee that was just introduced yesterday on health policy, it was, I believe, six Republicans and no Democrats. So that kind of, uh, I guess, gives you a clear indication on where Medicaid expansion is probably going to start um, going down that path unless something changes. Um, so what we have to do is make sure that whatever policy they come up with, whatever you call it, um, the waivers or however they do it, that we try to ensure as many people as possible. And I think that's where the focus is going to be is we're going to continue to talk about Medicaid expansion and the need for it. But at the same time, we're going to try to make sure we expand whatever access there is for people. Um, the ACA signups, I think, are at a record now. Um, so there is a need out there because if you want people working, you have to make sure they're healthy enough to go to work. And, you, and they're healthy enough to stay home, and they have insurance to stay home if they need to. So um, I think, you know, we're going to continue to have that dialogue, but um, but you're right. As far as full Medicaid expansion, it's going to have a uphill battle, and I think, you know, kind of got pushed back down the hill a little bit in November. Amy? No, I think that analysis is is correct, and I don't see the governor really sort of changing his position on it, especially with uh, the fact that a federal judge has allowed uh, the new provision to go forward, which uh, puts for the first time uh, in the country there being sort of explicit work requirements on um, the expansion of Medicaid. And so it's the Georgia Pathways Program. And I, and I think part of that is this kind of debate that we we have of sort of recognizing sort of what what does all of this mean, right? Who who in fact are the people uh, that are not able to do this, and and what are the things that are inhibiting their ability to get access, and how do we best as a state um, it sort of address those concerns as well as these kind of conflicting ideas between uh, sort of what should the state be paying for and what. In fact, are things that should be left to individuals to figure out themselves, right? That sort of work requirement suggests that really, right, the, the onus is on the individual to be providing these. And it's not really the job of the state. And that sort of goes in with sort of conservative fiscal policy as well. But at the same time, coming out of a global pandemic, when in many ways what we were really sort of recognizing was how many people aren't even getting basic health care and how much that contributes then to exacerbating the issues of something like COVID puts us in sort of this difficult position to try to figure out what is the best policy decision going forward. Edward, uh, going uh, way back uh, in the 21st century, uh, Georgia Republicans have argued that the reason we don't have a full expansion of Medicaid here is that while the federal government will pay for almost all of it for a period of time, eventually the money was going to have to come from state coffers. And um, the question has been for a long time, to what extent that is a valid argument, as opposed to just Republicans who refuse uh, to accept that the Affordable Care Act uh, gives the opportunity, is a Democratic plan which gave uh, the expansion of Medicaid uh, the potential to go further than it ever had before. Yeah, the, the question isn't, as shown by the, the governor's uh, waiver uh, plan, is is whether or not in terms of expanding Medicaid, we want to go about it through walking into the shallow end to see what works or jump into the deep end, uh, as, as some other folks feel is necessary. 
the, the problem with simply jumping into the deep end is that for those of us who, who've examined Medicaid uh, as it presently is working, it's already a strange system when it comes to servicing the needs of the folks who are already on Medicaid uh, in terms of the number of providers who are opting out of taking Medicaid patients, for instance, uh, and whether or not uh, throwing an, an additional uh, large number of people, you know, up to half a million or more into the Medicaid system, would it only further exasperate uh, the system as a whole? Um, the governor has, and the Republicans have, have said, well, we, we recognize that there is a need to expand. We got to help more people. And so we're going to do it through this work uh, program. Uh, in, in which it's it's something that is earned. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if that works. And then uh, if necessary, we can wade a little bit deeper into the pool uh, as we go along. But, uh, but a lot of times when it comes to, particularly when you want to expand in our existing system that's strained, you want to do about it, it go about it in a way that is responsible. And I think that's where Republicans uh, and the governor and, and the House okay. Are, are, are trying to do so. Keep in mind, uh, and David knows this very well, under Georgia law, the legislature has to approve any expansion. It's not something that right, just the exactly. government can do on its own. Yes, yes, yes. Something that Republicans did a number of uh, years ago to make sure that the governor couldn't change. If a Democratic governor came in, uh, she or he could not automatically expand it. Very quickly, because we're really, I've managed the time poorly again, Amy. Um, Buddy Carter has now introduced this measure uh, for a national consumption tax, which he calls a fair tax. Now, it's not going to go anywhere, first of all, because the Senate won't go for it. And second of all, because I don't think the House is ready to change whether we have an income tax or not. But his whole point is to eliminate the income tax, to eliminate the IRS entirely, and to go to this consumption tax, which is going to be something like 5 or 6%. Now, the only reason it's I mentioned it today, there's two reasons I mentioned it today. One is we do know that House Republicans are going after the 80-plus million dollars that the IRS was given uh, to make sure they can do their work properly, saying that this was just an effort to give them more power to investigate conservatives and the like. So this is kind of in keeping with that. Um, but it's not going to go anywhere. But it also reminds me of John Linder, longtime state uh, a congressman from Georgia, whose uh, fair tax proposal was something he went after time and time again during his like more than a dozen years in the uh, United States Congress. Um, these are ideas that keep coming up. They're sort of similar to the debates that we hear over increasing the debt limit and whether or not we can prioritize things. And I guess what I'm most struck by is that with many of these, it's conservative econom uh, economists who keep saying, look, we, we looked into this and it, it doesn't work particularly well. And a lot of the issues you think you're solving, we really don't. Um, so it's unlikely to get really any sort of traction. And it is a little odd to introduce it right now, to be honest, with inflation as high as it is, because it would uh, make, in fact, everything all that much more expensive, particularly because one of the big things people don't realize is that we don't tax groceries. Uh, and that's one of the huge places where, in fact, there would now have to be uh, a sales tax added to be able to even come close to uh, replacing the income tax. In the meantime, there are a couple of proposals uh, floating around in the uh, in the state legislature by Republicans uh, to uh, change over from 
an income tax to a flat tax of some sort. We, we're out of time. I wish we had more time to talk about this. We will take it up in a future political rewind. Um, but these ideas are not likely to get a whole lot of traction. But they are interesting in terms of the way Republicans think about taxation. That's it. We're out of time. Amy Steigerwald, um, David Wilkerson, Shannon McCaffrey, and of course, Edward Lindsay, thank you so much for the conversation today. I appreciate your participation. And thank you out there for listening to today's show. We're back with another edition of Political Rewind tomorrow. Till then, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.